Flight Suit Friday listeners, welcome back. It's Friday, which means we got an episode coming at you. Yeah, we're actually recording on a Friday. That's impressive. Yeah. Uh, we got people in, in studio. In studio. Dude, what's in happening, Mobile. Kenny? Oh, nothing. How, how are you? I'm good, man. Uh, last time we, uh, we chatted uh, for a podcast, you were under a giant stack of OERs. Uh, does that still exist? Yeah, I, I feel like I need to apologize. I was in a bad place. <laughs> Uh, when we recorded last <laughs> and uh yeah i'm i am better now i'm yeah. over the hump i think i can't say i didn't look at you like just hey man you can ask a question over there and you're just stone staring into the wall just you yeah were, i apologize my attitude sucked hey man we still i mean it was a great conversation with mike though like uh, i did enjoy it so yeah but uh today we got an awesome conversation coming with uh some great flight mechs out in the fleet and uh, and a pilot up in Cape Cod. So looking forward to getting into that. But before we do that, some shout outs. Yeah, let's do it. All right. All right. Uh, first, we're going to talk about Clearwater and the sailing vessel Lady Catherine. Uh, this happened uh, back in January, but it sounds like they got launched uh, for a sailing vessel that was disabled 140 nautical miles offshore. A good one, um, yeah, and uh, they were battling uh, time basically because there's a large squall front that was coming across the U.S. Uh, I don't know if you remember that one, but it mm-hmm. spit out tornadoes and stuff here in, in Mobile. But mm-hmm. uh, they were able to get out there, they got on scene with the sailing vessel. It took them four attempts to get the swimmer to actually get onto the vessel. Dang, um, at some point, they suffered a uh, comms failure, so they weren't able to talk inside the helicopter. It got dark as the sunset, um, but luckily they're able to get uh, both people safely off that vessel and uh, make it back to Clearwater. So good job to them. Let's see. The crew was uh, Lieutenant Dodson, Lieutenant Ray, uh, Petty Officer Helgo, and the rescue swimmer was McConnell, Petty Officer McConnell. So excellent job, guys. There, two life saved. Yeah. And you got a a good picture of the radar there too. I'm looking at at the newspaper you got in front of you. That's like one of those gnarly lines of thunderstorms that you don't want to mess around with. So- and, oh, yeah. their, and their rescue spots, like right before that thunderstorm line comes blasting through. Oh, yeah. Uh, a couple of things that they said were lessons learned of uh, when they first got out there, the sea state was such that they couldn't find this, you know, white sailing vessel amongst a bunch of white caps because they're looking at about 10 to 15 foot seas and up to 50 knot gust as that squall line was yeah. approaching. So, um, yeah, they actually had a C-130 that was out there covering them because of comms and being that far offshore. And so they appreciated that C-130 coming out for them. As um, always. And helping them vector them into that boat. But, uh, you know, being able to use DF and try to help them locate that, that sailing vessel. Nice. All right. Well, congrats, Clearwater Cruise. Right, that little sound bite signifies new segment for the week. Uh, a couple of cool things. Uh, we got to give a little bit of time to the fixed wing, you know, eye roll in, insert here. But no, <laughs> actually, they uh, they're we're trying to build a C twenty seven sim. Uh, it's in it's in progress, but in true fixed wing fashion, you know, like it's going super slow. <laughs> uh, they actually found a flaw, I think, in the design feature. So they've kind of gone back to that, and um, it maybe it's two December's from now that that's going to be up and running. Whether that's a C27 or, you know, the 65 community makes it into a new gym, one or the other. Like, that building will get well used. But uh, a cool thing, uh, the C130J, which is uh, a simulator that we have wanted here for a long time, I think in the last 10 years, has made it onto the UPL, which I had no idea what a UPL is. Yeah, what is a UPL? Apparently, it's something called the unfunded priority list, but that's like 
as that good sounds as important. It's as good as being on the budget, I guess, but it's not on the budget. But it's like, hey, like this is this is a big ticket item. So uh, kudos to the uh, the Midas Touch, Captain Chris Holzer. Like he uh, he probably got it on there. So. And uh, speaking of, of him, we'll segue into the other uh, news for the fleet. The the Mac is up and running here at the ATC Mobile um, Aviation Training Center, the Mishap Analysis Center for the safety school. So the FSO initial course, uh, it's a big tent, uh, but we affectionately, I guess, call it the marshmallow after talking to Rob O'Donnell. <laughs> I haven't heard it called the marshmallow. That's what the big apparently top, right? it is. It's a big top. Yep. So it's out in the in the tennis courts on your way out to the exchange. But inside of it, they have the head from the 6505 mishap. Uh, they got the 6522 head uh, that caught fire. We talked about last week and the engines on there as well. One of them's disassembled. Uh, they got the C27 um, prop that uh, had a blade strike in San Francisco. Uh, 6523 and the 1705 Vaders are in there as well. Um, what's neat is that they are actually going to shift P course CRM leadership lectures uh, in the next year, or maybe starting next year. Uh, to more of a mishap analysis and go actually into the into the Mac, which uh, I just learned about today, which I think is really cool. I think that's really beneficial. Like, hey, let's let's come to Mobile and uh, hey, we're not going to teach you CRM, but we're going to like kind of infuse CRM into the discussion by going through some mishaps and, and actually walking around the aircraft out there. The 6599 is actually there to the entire aircraft. So yeah, um, that's pretty cool. Uh, it's, it's a temporary fabric structure. Um, but the, the one I wanted to mention with uh, the Midas touch, he wants to actually make the outside structure look like a cutter. So Captain Holzer wants to make our mishap analysis center look like a cutter. And <laughs> I, I on actually, purpose? yeah. Oh man. On purpose. Okay. We got thumbs down. I don't know. I don't know about <laughs> this. Yeah. I mean like I can understand the entry door looking like a hangar door in the back of a ship. Cool. Cause that's, that's all about us. But I heard he even wanted a stack. He wanted to try and put a stack on the mishap analysis center. A skipper, a cutterman. Has he spent time on a cutter? We, I don't know. Should we bring him back on here and ask him like, or is he getting close to the flag rank? He's got to have aspirations of every different, uh, every different kind of group in the Coast Guard, not just aviation anymore. So that that I think that's my uh, so. yeah. We'll have to do some research. We'll get back to everyone. But I would like to incorporate Midas Touch as uh, the skipper's new call sign. So, all right. Well, that's uh, that's it. So with that being said, we'll get into the interview. <laughs> Flight Suit Friday podcast listeners. We're going to dive right into it. We got uh, some great guests today, Kenny. Um, jumping into some CRM uh, from the flight mech perspective and uh, how important that is. And then also something that we, we gave a quick news bit last uh, uh, podcast about the 65 to 60 flight mech transition. So with that, I'm sitting in front with two people here, and then we got uh, another on the phone. We'll start. Uh, hey, Nick, we'll start with you on the phone since you're not here. Can you just uh, introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah. Hey, um, uh, my name is Nick Zablani. I'm uh, up in Air Station Cape Cod right now. Uh, Academy grad 2012. Did uh, two years on a 210 in St. Pete, Florida flight school. Been to Clearwater for five and a half years. Uh, spring break ended in 2020 when I had to come up to Cape Cod. Uh, but I love it up here. And um, Sam, I uh, I was actually able to find a uh, a beer in the Canadian fridge here, so it's actually a Molson. So uh, shout out to Major Pete Wright for uh, for the Molsons for this. 
Hey, man, Molson's a good beer. I haven't had one of those in a hot minute. That's awesome. Hey, yeah. uh, just I want to tell the listeners about your uh, military ID real quick because I got oh, a, yeah. I got a picture of it in front of me. And if anybody has seen Happy Gilmore and the <laughs> character that Ben Stiller plays uh, at the nursing home, like your <laughs> your ID picture looks almost exactly like that. Uh, I'm very impressed. This is my favorite ID picture I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Sam, Sam, you inspired me. You were at Ahars. You showed me yours with uh, your dyed uh, blonde mustache. So <laughs> that's what inspired me. <laughs> All right, buddy. Welcome. Uh, Andrew, what's going on, dude? Hey, good to be here. And, yeah. uh, my name's Andrew Champagne. Stationed in Cape Cod with Nick Sablotny right now. Uh-huh. I uh, joined in 2011 and uh, out of boot camp, went to the great Cutter Seneca. Oh, nice. Out of, uh, in Boston. Boston boy. And then uh, went to uh, A school. Watch out there, Kenny. Oh, he's already knocked his mic over. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't he have a beer yet? <laughs> I'll go get beers. I'll make myself. Okay, yeah, I'll be back. Go, get, back. go get beers. <laughs> And then I went to A school, then went to Great Air Station Cape Cod out yeah. of A school. Dang, you've been there the whole time? I short toured oh, okay. out, out of there. Uh, went to Cody. I got a two and a half years Cape Cod. Mm-hmm. Short toured when they did the uh, magical Traverse opening. Yeah. And the Hilo went up there, so all the billets left as well. Oh, okay. So I got magical orders. I came in for my jury duty notice one morning. Oh, my God. And the YN was like, hey, you here for your orders to Kodiak? <laughs> and I was like. Uh, uh, no, I'm here for my jury duty <laughs> notice. So uh, I went and talked to senior chief, and uh, about four months later, I was heading to Kodiak. Dang, dude, <laughs> that's a it's an interesting way to get orders to Kodiak. <laughs> Holy cow! So I uh, spent three years up there, loved it every minute of it. Uh, that was probably one of the the best time to be a second class flight mechanic was was up in Alaska. So yeah, man. I loved it up there every minute of it, doing great things up there. And then uh, we, my wife's from Cape Cod. We met there, so we went yeah. back to Cape for for family and and all that. So how long have you been there now? Back uh, almost two years. Yeah. Where are you from? I'm actually from Massachusetts. Oh, dude. Yep. So I'm. I grew up about four hours away from Cape Cod. You're like the D1 mafia. Yeah. yeah. D1. <laughs> That's good stuff, dude. Well, welcome. We're yep. so stoked Thank to you. have Glad you. Glad to be here. Yeah, um, and also. You, you're providing the beer for us today. I did. Uh, I so did. Uh, Can we take a moment to <laughs> talk about what you got? Yeah, I I. Uh, was talking to my father actually the other night and uh back home we have a little uh bar that we like to go to and we like to say hey you guys want to go get some lunch and my mom instantly knows <laughs> we're going drinking so because they have main beer company lunch on tap and this is from freeport maine um it's one of my favorite ipas and i fa- magically found them down here in alabama I, last night so like I, can't, I still can't believe that you found that beer because that is a that is a beer that I love. It's one of my favorite beers, and uh, to know that it's down here, I'm yeah, open it. Let's crack these open. Yeah. Oh, nice. Absolutely. Actually, I think this is the first time that we've first ever bottle. chilled glasses. Yeah. In preparation to drink the beer, normally yeah. it's just straight out of the can. We are we're not messing around. Uh, the gentleman who's about to crack this beer, uh, we still need. I was going to say, do I have to wait till I introduce myself <laughs> yeah. before I do it? Or? Uh, what's going on, Will? Oh, not much. Glad to be here. Uh, Will Smith is my name. I'm not slapping anybody on this podcast <laughs> unless Sam gets out of line, and then I'm going to smack him silly. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I was a after boot camp. I went to St. Paul Island, Alaska, to be a non-rate at the Loran station. Oh, I was a Loranimal. No way. <laughs> oh dude. yeah. 
Oh yeah. What? Um, I was there when a dude got caught drunk driving, and then we went on a manhunt on the island for him, <laughs> which was the most ridiculous thing. After we did it, because there's only two ports of or two points of uh, entry or exit there. <laughs> it's the port or the airport, and then you're just on an island. So. Yeah, dude, we're gonna find you. Yeah, but we like they combed the tundra for this guy. Like, just sit at the airport in the port. You find him? Uh, I don't know. We never got word. Was this a Coast Guard operation to find this guy? It, it was a joint effort between the two uh, the two policemen on the island, <laughs> or the two Alaska State Troopers, some Coast Guard members, and some other people. Um, I think it was it was uh, some of the construction guys because it was a construction worker working on the Coast Guard building. Oh my God! Yeah, that's awesome. Well, so you've been to a Laran station. Well, I've been to a Laran station. Are those still operational? They yeah. shut down uh, ten yeah, years ago, right? They yeah, they're not. They're not. Op- when I was there, it was being kept alive by some okay, some Couple people fi- who were just like all about Lorraine and had money to waste on it. Yeah, so that's why we were there. That must have been a, a cool, like first assignment that was just totally out there. It was a unique experience. Yeah, a unique yeah. experience. That's probably a better way. Uh, I, I would definitely take that over being on a cutter like any day though. Yeah, because I mean, my duty days consisted of me hanging out in the galley. There's a room next to it. And on one of my duty days, I watched the entire Lord of the Rings extended version, <laughs> did one round, and then went to bed. <laughs> so that, that's pretty much yeah, it. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> so obviously you were other places. Where else have you been stationed? No, that's it. That's it? Okay. Yeah. All right. Moving <laughs> on. <laughs> now, I was an airman in Los Angeles. Rest in peace. That was yeah, like yeah. the best air station, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after A school, I came down to Mobile. And uh, as luck would have it, I would be here for five years or so. And then uh, I got some interesting news that I was going to Kodiak as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't on my dream sheet. wasn't expecting it. I got a call from my senior chiefs like, hey, congratulations, you're going to Kodiak. What? And my, my wife started crying because <laughs> she started realizing that the Coast Guard dreams are not her dreams. <laughs> <laughs> but just like Andrew said, like I went up there as a second class flight mech. Just loved it. That is that is the place to be. Yeah, second class flight, Mac. That's my awesome. wife loved it, so we would love to go back sometime. Really? Yeah. Nice, dude. I always yeah. find that interesting. You know, people get you know, oh, orders to wherever, and you're like, that was nowhere near our list. We haven't talked about it, and tears are shed. And then oftentimes yeah. when you leave, <laughs> like tears are shed because you're like, yeah. we love it here. We met so many awesome people here. You know. Yeah. yeah. And we only remember the good times. So there, are, to to be clear for the listening audience. There are some really miserable times on Kodiak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you forget them because you can only remember the good times. So Yeah. Just prepare yourself if you're going there this summer. Yep, 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 yep. So so after Kodiak uh, came back to Mobile, uh, wasn't necessarily my first option, but after standing up six helos in Alaska and doing lots of uh, deployments, mm-hmm. didn't want to go to Clearwater and deploy even more. Mm-hmm. Um, and we acquired a lot of children. While we were up in yeah, Alaska. How many, how many you got? <laughs> well, so we have four uh, outside the womb, and then we have another one brewing inside. Do you really? Yeah. Congratulations. Oh, yeah. We haven't really talked a lot since. Oh, yeah. That is <laughs> awesome, man. Yep. So I am a uh, progenitor of children, if you will. Uh, but uh, so anyways, yep. So we came back down here. I'm from Atlanta. Yeah. So we're kind of close to family. It works out. Uh, did four years in the shop, then an opportunity to slide over into the stand office came about mm-hmm. and we decided that we could handle Mobile for another four years to do this job because it's been the best job that I've had in the Coast Guard. Yeah. Love it. Love being an AHARS instructor with Sam. Best job I ever had. Yeah. Uh, so 
here I sit. Would you say that one of your life goal aspirations is to grow a mullet at some point? I've already achieved that. Okay. So yeah, there's a good picture <laughs> yeah. of that out there. Yeah, there yeah. is. <laughs> well, awesome guys. I'm so stoked uh, to have you guys here and actually I have people in, in person. I feel like we haven't had a chance to do that in a while. Have we Kenny? I don't think so. Yeah. So, um, Hey, let's dive into it. So Nick uh, and Andrew, you guys were part of like a really interesting uh, SAR case that turned into not a SAR case and, and probably a pretty yeah. good discussion. Uh, Andrew, you kind of want to start uh, from your perspective? <laughs> sure. Uh, I will. At the Cape at the time, we were doing three-shift duty, so I was on mid-shift as mm -hmm. a flight mechanic, and I uh, got the call to go find and search somebody up in Maine yeah. early in the morning. Oh, three-shift duties, huh? Yeah, like yeah. you broke it into eight-hour shifts? Yeah, yeah. No way. I didn't yep. know that. I didn't know anyone in the Coast Guard was doing never that. Even heard yeah, we that. did it for years on the Cape because we did that, um, the transition to Traverse, so we yeah. were pretty short-handed, so this kind of alleviated some, some help with duty and all that, so... Wow. How was that received? Did did you like it? Uh, I, it worked well for a while, and then it kind of, I think it could have been managed better, um, being on mids and not being as proficient and and not, uh, you know, you're doing all the SAR cases and you're not you're not hoisting and yeah, training. Going and out for the RT2. So, you know, and you're up all fours. night yeah. anyway. So uh, it can be tricky. As long as it's managed well, I think it works great. Um, but, yeah. that's huh. I don't know. We've been kicking around ideas of like, hey, is – you know, if we just start seeing shortages yeah. in, in aviation, like how could you reduce the amount of people you have and still send duty? And one of those things is like, well, what if you did two 12 hour shifts yeah. and try to eliminate some of those extra collateral duties that are associated? But mm -hmm. anyways, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, we rolled uh, flight mech right into night's flight mech, right into mid's flight mech. And yep. uh, it worked, it works great. Yeah. You just, like I said, you just got to make sure people are are getting their mins and getting training that they need and time off that they need. Yeah, you yeah, guys so. probably are the one section that can do it because you have the most people, mm -hmm. you know, pilots and swimmers, maybe not. Yeah, but. and it's just like going to a hurricane or something. Like, you're going to not know who your flight mag is at the time until you go brief, right? So, you know, we're all trained to the same standard, so why not do it yeah. at your unit if you yeah. need it? Yeah, Nick, what did you think about that three-shift thing? Um, I mean, it, it was cool for, for the guys. It's just uh, the only problem on the pilot side is that, you know, I might wake up in the middle of the night and not know who my flight mech is. And we'd always start like a, we always start a duty text conversation, which includes the night flight mech. Mm -hmm. And then at like three o'clock in the morning, the ODO sends out the, uh, I'll wake you up and then send out a text with all the info. Whoever was a night flight mech might be like, come on, man. Like I don't need this information right now. <laughs> yeah. Cause they're at home sleeping. So, yeah. but I mean, it was, it was cool for, uh, like, like Andrew said, like it doesn't really matter. It's just plug and play. Um, with everyone. Yeah. Sweet. Well, back to the story. Yep. What, so what happened I, on I this on duty and on this shift? Saw Mr. Z walking down and we're going out to go do, go do a mission and we did max bag. So, you know, we do our pre-flight in the hangar and everything looked good. Mm -hmm. All the tanks and everything, nothing was loose. So we, uh, pulled a plane out. We needed 5,800 pounds. So we max bag and, um, what was this hard case to go search for a missing person? Mm -hmm. uh, or I think it was overdue. I think it was like in the 12 foot yeah, skiff, a, right? I think it was a, it was the first light, right, Andrew? Yeah, 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 yep. So we're going to search for somebody who was uh, missing, and uh, Max Bag to go up to Maine, um, and we take off. We're kind of right, kind of through that transitional lift period, and I'm just sitting in my seat, and you know, we're helicopters, we're we're shaking and we're moving, and we're vibrating. Mm -hmm. So I just felt something weird, and I I checked my seat real quick, make sure it was locked and checked, and and all that. And I kind of looked around, I didn't see anything. So I just, I was like, you guys feel that? And 
Uh, I think it was, I think it was you, Mr. Z was like, uh, well, no, I don't feel anything. And the rescue swimmer was like, yeah, I don't feel anything. And then he asked me, do you think we need to land? And I was like, yes, land now. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I still feel it, you know? Yeah. Nick, what was your perspective or what was the weather like too, that you're about to go into? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we were called in as backup crew, uh, that morning. Um, I think I got told at like two or three in the morning to be there at like, because it, it gets pretty sunny pretty quick here. So I think I got here probably four in the morning or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and like Andrew said, um, max bag. So filled up the external tanks, uh, 6,000 pounds. Cause it was about a, it was pretty far, um, hike up there. I'd say at least an hour, hour and a half to Ornstein. Where were you guys um, headed? I, I don't remember. It's somewhere in Maine. I think it was Booth Bay Harbor. Uh, Booth Bay. Okay. Was it Booth Bay? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the weather, that was kind of the other interesting thing. I can't, it was overcast, I want to say between two and 400 feet. Um, so it was like, it was legit weather. Um, and then like, like Andrew said, go out there, take off. Um, I was left seat, AJ Hammock was right seat and Jack Lacey was in the back as a rescue swimmer. Um, take off, go through ETL. Everything feels fine for me up front. We're probably, yeah, and then, uh, and then Andrew says, Hey, do you guys feel that? And I say, no. And we're about to go in the clouds. Like we're starting to get in the clouds and I'm starting to lose sight of the runway. Mm-hmm. And I said, do we need to learn to Andrew? And he said, yeah. And so I was like, all right, AJ put us down. And yeah, we were, we were seconds from going IMC and then having to come back and shoot a, uh, instrument approach. So landed, um, taxi back, uh, on the runway shut down. And I will say this. Andrew got out very quickly and ran around to the tanks to check to see if they were loose. Mm-hmm. And I can't confirm that he didn't uh, loosen them to save his own, <laughs> to, save, <laughs> to save himself. So, yeah, but no, I usually carry an H and a 16th with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He did a great job uh, being, um, I, th- I think that our whole thing was accurate, bold, and concise. We were very quick to, quick to land. And uh, I think you guys, I sent you guys the article, but. Andrew got a big award from HAI for this, for the Land and Live Award. So it's it was a pretty big deal, and I'm really proud of Andrew for what he did. Yeah, so what was wrong with this, the fuel tank? Yeah, so I got out, kind of checked my seat again, checked the cabin, um, looked up at the rotor head, didn't see anything like dangling, you know, and uh, looked at the right tank, pushed on it, everything looked good, walked around, left outboard tank, looked, around, looked at it, looked all good, got to the left inboard tank, and it was just kind of shaking loose. Really? And I, and the swimmer, I could see him in the window. Jack Lacey looks at it and he goes, is that the tank? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, man, this thing's loose. Uh, you know, who knows what would have happened if we would have kept going. But, yeah. um, it, you know, we tightened it back up and did a good pre-flight check on it and everything. And we ended up taking off to go back out and go try to find that Still guy. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah it sounds like you guys did, obviously did an awesome job in employing CRM and, you kind of did what I call floating the CRM balloon of like, Hey, I feel something like, I don't know what it is, but I need to get something out there to like direct some attention. And that's just like float that balloon. Does anyone else feel anything? No. Okay. Um, and then Nick, it sounds like you did a good job of putting it right back. Like, Hey, no one else feels this. Hey man, you're the only one that can make a decision right now. I need you to make a decision because we're popping in the clouds in three seconds. Um, and, and kind of fleshed out that like accurate, bold, concise, and needed to happen right now. Yeah. And I looked out the flight mech window and I could only see the lights of the runway lights. I couldn't see the runway at all. I just saw that like blue light. So mm-hmm. I was like, 
yeah, let's land. You know, like mm-hmm. I can see that still. So but if we go any higher, or we keep going. I know we're going to be going out and doing a big IFR approach coming back in. So with some vibration, I don't want to be doing that. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. 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 I, Question to everyone. Have yeah. you guys ever been in the aircraft where you feel something or you know something isn't quite right and you've failed to say something and then, you know, minutes or, you know, down the road, you're like, oh, that thing happened that I thought was happening. Mm-hmm. I'll be damned. Why didn't I say something? Mm-hmm. I, it's certainly happened to me. It's happened to me a couple of times where I was like, oh, I, I can project. I know it's about to happen and it's not going to be good. And for some reason, like I, I didn't say anything. Yeah. I wonder and, why we don't. Cause I feel like that's happened to me too. Um, I can't think of a specific example. Have you had anything happen to you like that? Will? I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I can think of reasons why I would want to keep silent and I shouldn't, you know, especially as a maintainer, because you're thinking about all the man labor hours that are about <laughs> to go into the inspections. Yeah. You know, like in Kodiak, we used to always get uh, unusual vibe write-ups by the pilots and it usually was followed by like four hours of inspections and no, and no, no findings, you know, it, which yeah. I would get upset about that. And I would say to my, myself back then, like, don't get upset about it. Like, this is what we do. This is how we find those discrepancies. Like, and to find one time where it did matter is worth all the other times. Yeah. Um, and plus, you know, that's our job. We're here to be maintainers. We're here to make sure everything's safe for flight. Yeah. So we shouldn't get so caught up in that. Like, we're going to get paid for those man labor hours, regardless if we're not doing anything or if we are doing something. So, yeah. What do you guys think about, um, like, obviously, you're, this is your third aviation tour when this happened yep. to you. Were you a first class at, at that point? or No, I'm actually making first this summer. You're making first this summer. Yep. Okay, yeah. So, like, you're well experienced. What about a BA who is, like, on their third yeah. flight and they're about to go out? Well, even, like, the like swimmer, that? like, they're like, I don't, and he's right next to the tank. Yeah. You know, he just didn't have the time in the aircraft to recognize a vibration like that. Yeah. So. And, like, ha- I mean, I think it's important to advocate for those younger folks, right? And, like, how, how do we train them to have the confidence to say, Hey, no, even if it's nothing, even if we land, it's nothing like that's better than getting in there. I don't know. What do you guys think? How do you, how do you set that culture in, especially in the seat that you guys sit in? Like what's- uh, just reminding them that they, as a crew member, that you're all on an equal plane. Now it's not about rank in the helicopter. It's about lives. So yeah. Telling them that your voice matters just as much as the voices up front. Mm-hmm. And so speak up if, even if you don't, really understand what's going on, but if something feels different, just speak up and you may get clarity on it or somebody may say, wow, I, let's check this out real quick because, um, you know, that's, that's something good that you just brought up. Mm-hmm. So just the ability to speak up and realize that every voice in that aircraft matters because the safety of the crew, that's the biggest deal. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Anything, anything to add to that, Nick? Uh, I, I think it's big on the pilots up front to, you know, foster that inclusive culture in the back. Um, and don't just kind of shoo shoo it. If it's, you know, a newer guy, just make sure, you know, you're, you're open to anything and kind of, um, you know, put away, put away the rank. Like they said, like you guys said, and yeah. just make sure that everyone feels comfortable speaking up. Yeah. I think it's important too, for, uh, junior members to not feel, uh, afraid to ask questions too. Cause like, once you get qualified, it's like your license to learn, right? And so there's so many things that you haven't seen exactly. before, right? Yep. So why not? Like, what does what does bingo mean? And you know, how do you do your fuel calcs up there? Or what you know, what are you doing tuning up that instrument approach? What the heck do you want me to do in the back besides sit there and yeah? And I think it's important to you know that's why we're highlighting this case right yeah. now is like 
you felt something, you thought it wasn't right. Did you know what it was? I'd, you had no idea. You just knew that I had never felt that vibration sitting in this seat, uh, you know, of the 500 takeoffs and today is different and let's, let's come back and land. And you're like, yeah, there was something wrong with the helicopter. Yep. Would it have been fatal if you guys take it off? I don't know. Maybe, um, maybe you would have been fine. Maybe you would have dropped a 500 pound tank on somebody's living room. Um, as you're yeah. getting vectored around to come back uh, after that tank fell off. Mm -hmm. um, and just like you're saying, maybe you're like, hey, something doesn't feel right. And you come back and you land and you shut down and you get a look, good look at the plane. And you're like, I don't see anything. Like, I don't know. Maybe it was just a really weird crosswind or some wind shear up at a certain altitude. Yep. But at least you got to stop and take a look at the aircraft, um, you know, and there obviously wasn't. Yeah, you're on a SAR case, but there wasn't someone dying right in front of you that you right. couldn't take an extra 30 minutes to come back and, and take a look at something. And I, that's great. That's a good point. Like, yeah. what if what if you were going out in the same thing scenario, but you guys were going out 10 miles offshore for a vessel on fire with five people that needed to get off? I mean, hopefully, like, you have another up asset at home. Like, yeah. land it, pull the other one out. We'll check that one out when we get back. Yeah. And it goes back to... Hey, I got weird vibrations up front as as a pilot. Well, you guys are making that call. Mm -hmm. There's nothing saying that an aircrewman can't do the same thing. Yeah. Like, hey, sir, I have a, I have a weird vibe. Let's go land. Yeah, we got four hours to check, but then we found nothing. But at least we landed and checked it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, like, I feel like I don't know if you think this uh, at all, Nick, but like, definitely there is a perceived pressure when the SAR case is legit and you're going out to rescue somebody. You know, oh yeah, you know, yeah, for sure. And you get into warranted risk discussion for sure, right? That's kind of what we why we have the thirty seven ten blanket of warranted risk. But in that case, you want you probably want to stop. You definitely want to <laughs> yeah. stop. Like you don't want to keep going. Yep. Um, yeah, I remember hearing a case. Uh, there was a Hitron bird that ended up. I think they were doing some bounces with a with a British ship, and so they're doing some DLQs, and they're on their like fourth landing. And they're about to take off. And sure enough, it was either the gunner or the flight mech was like, uh, don't take off. Like, okay, lower the collective. I'm like, what's going on? They're like, I feel a weird vibration. Like, uh, okay, like we don't feel anything up front. And as they're talking about it, uh, they get an alternator light and they start smelling smoke and fume. And what it was is that alternator was eating itself. And it was just where the flight mech happened yep. to be sitting. Like they felt that vibration and it kept them from, you know. Nice. Much rather be sitting on deck, yeah, smelling smoke and sure. with electrical lights coming on in the cockpit, and it worked out good for them because I got to drink beer on some British ship for like four days as they try mm. to figure out how to get yeah. an alternator to them. But it just highlights the exact things that we're we're talking about yeah. right now. Yeah, um, Cape Cod. Just a little highlight of Cape Cod. Uh, do you guys eat lobster every Friday up there? Or what's it like? Uh, it there? depends. So if the crew's gone out diving for lobsters and they've come back with plenty of lobsters, we're having lobsters. Really? Right yeah. Oh, yeah. Dude. We've got a, a good night shift crew. Shout out to those guys and uh, Chief Van Sicklin. She's retiring in a few months. So uh, they go lobster diving and she comes in and she'll whip up us some some uh, lobster rolls for, for lunch. And That's awesome. Yeah. We got a good thing going up there right now. So uh, Nick, you got a favorite brewery or a place to, to visit uh, on the Cape? I yeah, I like um, I like Bad Marks. I think they got the best beer. And uh, dude, I gotta I gotta pick a bone with you, man. I'm uh, I'm not a big IPA guy, so I I couldn't answer that question. I gotta take uh, this out. Dude, you New England IPA uh, questions: New England IPA versus West Coast IPA. 
They're they're both gross, man. <laughs> uh, it depends for me. I get, I'll get burnt out with the juice bombs, and I'll get burnt out with the bitterness. So I yeah, kinda, that's true. I kind of throw it back and forth, and you know, it depends on on the month for yeah. me. Really, my my favorite brewery in the Northeast is probably Bissell Brothers Brewery. Right. I don't know if you guys ever go there, like doing our way up to Portland, but that place is good. That place is really good. How about you, Will? New England IPA versus uh, I don't West think I've ever. How's this one? This one is really good. I don't yeah. think I've ever had a New England IPA, and if this is it, it's good. Yep. This yeah. is but, but more I, traditional I, style. I, uh, I'll have to say that my time in Alaska made me not a fan of IPAs because it's like sweet tea in the South. <laughs> they just like push it on you. Really? You know, it's like, hey, have you tried our IPA? How about this IPA? How about this APA, which is just like an IPA, but not <laughs> my, not as much as an IPA, and we have double IPAs? That I like honestly that feel like the West thing. Coast just is like, oh, let's see how disgusting we can make this. And people will be like, oh, it's so good. Yeah. You know, like, no, this is disgusting yeah. at some point, you know. Yep. I'm eating a pine tree right now. I'm a New England IPA guy because it tones down the bitterness a little bit. Same. Yeah. I'm full on. Uh, cool. You guys want to jump into this uh, course, the 65 to 60 flight mech transition, right? Yeah. What is it? Besides... What the title? Implies. We don't know. <laughs> yeah. so, so, I mean, I'm sure most people listening are aware that the Coast Guard is going to be transitioning 65 units to 60 just due to the parts availability on the 65, the high amount of hours that's on that airframe. And it's just the 65, even though it's not going away anytime soon, is just starting to kind of decrease in its uh, operational capabilities. So mm-hmm. with that being said, there's a couple of problems. Uh at least on the operational side, is how do you train all these people who are about to work on a completely different airframe, whose all their experience has been on a on a separate airframe, mm-hmm. even though they're both helicopters. The time it takes to make somebody on the hangar deck the way that we traditionally do it could be somewhere between like six to eight months or longer. Wow. Yeah. So it's it poses a problem if you have something like, say, Air Station Ventura, which they're saying is going to be a 60 air station in 2024. Mm-hmm. But we don't have the amount of flight mechs in the 60 fleet to just send like 15 flight mechs over there to be ready to stand duty. So Isn't that the first one that they're actually using new hulls or new 60s, uh, either whether they're Navy or new hulls? I, I, that's what I heard the skipper say that, but... I don't, I don't want to say anything because yeah. I don't know enough and I may know enough to be dangerous, so I'm yeah. just going to say... Uh, <laughs> yeah. okay. I'm Ron Bergen. Yep. Uh, but uh, yeah, but what we do know is that the bulk of the people who will outfit Ventura will be 65 members. Mm-hmm. And then you run into the problem like New Orleans is running into now where they have nine guys transitioning this summer, but they don't really have instructors there yet to train them. And all these guys are just sitting there like somewhat useless because nobody can qualify them. Yeah. So we're we're beta testing a program where we take a qualified basic air crew or flight mech, depending on what uh, your designation or your qualification is in the 65. Mm -hmm. And we've developed a five-week course to take a flight mech who's qualified on the 65 Delta or Echo and make him a 60 flight mech. Wow. And and the idea is that, so they're going to bring like a whole wealth of experience into this training. We're not making a new air crew member. We're taking somebody with a ton of CRM ORM maintenance experience just on a different helicopter and hoisting experience. And we're just teaching them how to do the same thing mm-hmm. on a new helicopter. Okay. Um, and the one thing that we can't give these guys is experience. 
we can't give them years and years and years of maintenance experience on the 60. But what we can give them is the system knowledge and just the knowledge of the airframe to do what they're already doing in the 65. Uh, and we don't have to take six to eight months to get them to that point. They can stay in duty as a flight mech by meeting the requirements in our, and the 60-1 chapter four lays out the requirements for like a duty standing flight mech. Mm -hmm. And the only requirement maintenance wise is that they are able to do light maintenance away from station. Yeah. So what we're doing here in the school is we're doing like an intense week on the front end of systems knowledge and we're building them up with classroom lectures using the ICWs on the e-learning portal. I don't know if, if you're familiar with mm -hmm. those, mm -hmm. uh, taking that training and then we're taking them to the hangar deck doing some hands-on training. And then the next week we're focusing on getting them pre-through post-flight qualified. And then the next week we're doing engine run quals and we're starting into our BA phase. And then week four, they're, they're going to be doing like their BA flights and getting designated. Mm -hmm. Then if you're a flight mech, you're going to do an extra week where you do three flights in the helo and we're going to use uh, a combination of ground training and uh, hoist simulator training. Oh, nice. To supplement. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're down here, Andrew, to, to help out or? Yeah, I came down to assist. Nice, dude. Yep. That's yeah, awesome. He's killing it too. Crushing it. He's owning it. Are you the only uh, out of mobile IP that, or FMI that came down here? Yeah. Yeah. They kind of put out a solicitation and nobody really kind of took the bait. So, uh, <laughs> so I got a, I got a phone call and, um, I ponied up and yeah, came down and uh, I'm enjoying it. it. I love training people and teaching the new guys and, uh, you know, like I'm an examiner up, up at home and stuff like that. So yeah, getting all these, these guys transitioned and I think it's going to be a, a great thing that the fleet needs. Um, as long as we kind of prepare these guys and Stantium has done just a, a phenomenal job prepping that. I thought I was going to come down here and just get handed like a post flight card and yeah. say, Hey, go, go to the hangar deck with oh. a couple guys. And I'm just like, Ooh, this is not going to be good, yeah, but right. they have thoroughly thought this out and yeah. it is, it is a great plan that they have in place. So, so do we have students here yet or is it still a development stage? It's so it's still technically like a, a beta test, even though we're not using that language because that has connotations connected to it. We're not calling it a course either because mm -hmm. if you call it that, uh, the Forcecom world has some things to say about it. Oh yeah. So we're calling it a program. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's got a curriculum uh, that we're following. We got two guys from NOLA here currently. One of them, and they're both on the complete opposite spectrum of um, experience. So we have a former E-Stand 65 member named Dave Cummings. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. He's coming through. And then the other guy got qualified as a flight mech a week before he came here. Because wow. uh, I, <laughs> I told Air Station New Orleans, like, hey, this is not a course for initial qualification. So yeah. if he's not a qualified flight mechanic, we're not going to accept him. So they got him qualified oh, on the 65 just so he could come here. You told me the requirement <laughs> and we met it, buddy. Yeah. Yeah, so he hasn't stood duty yet as a 65 flight mechanic. He probably <laughs> doesn't he? even have a hoist under his belt. His as last a flight qualified. was a stand yeah. check yeah. on a 65. Yeah. Oh, my God. So That's we're getting a good, we're getting like a good, good. test subject here of yeah. seeing like, okay, so the minimal amount of 65 experience versus the max amount. Yeah. And let's see how these two guys do in this program. Yeah, I have a lot of important questions. Number one, uh, do our guys tow uh, aircraft better than 60s? So important? we're not teaching them line crew stuff. I thought you guys had you are doing uh, <laughs> uh, whatever post. Uh, maybe that's so, so when different. you're away from station, not a whole lot of towing gets done. <sighs> okay. So what we've, what we've done is we've taken our BA ground syllabi 
um, and we're exposing them to towing. They've been a part of a couple of towing evolutions, but we're not qualifying them because that's something that when they get back to New Orleans, they're going to have a ton of time to practice towing. Yeah. So let's not focus on those small things that don't really matter uh, in flight. We're focusing on who you are in flight. And then again, if you're away from station, what do you need to do? So that's my next actual question is uh, our community has um, not a standard, but maybe just a, um, a norm that we move pretty quick through our hoisting evolutions, our briefs, our actual hoists, uh, our debriefs, just in the nature of being in a 65, you're always limited on fuel. Um, and we make fun of you guys uh, just because it's fun about, you know, taking forever to do one hoist or two hoists because <laughs> you guys have the gas to do a full brief, a full debrief. You guys can talk about it. Have you seen, have you gotten anybody in the flight phase and seen that difference or had any feedback uh, from our flight mechs going through yet? You want to take this one, Andrew? Or? <laughs> yeah, I actually got to hoist with them yesterday. Oh, nice. Um, we kind of just, I was like, all right, well, we're at, we were doing our first BA flight and we were doing some confined area landings and some slope landings and going through all that process. Mm-hmm. And we had a little bit extra time on the back end. So I was like, well, let's, let's try, try hoisting. And, uh, I walked out of that flight and I was like, well, good thing there's a hoist simulator coming here. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and not to discredit any 65 flight max, but yeah. they were just go, 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 go. Oh yeah. And we're used to that. Just like, all right, put the basket down five feet off the deck and holding and con me in. Yeah. Right. And they were putting the basket out and just sending it. Well, that's kind of like a dynamic hoist. Yeah. And they're probably not used yeah. to the fact that the 60 hoist is immediate, uh, full speed, right? They it's, love that. By the they way. probably <laughs> love, they love yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. I, I got to hoist on 65 before we started this. Cause I wanted to like experience what they do. Yeah. And I will tell you right now that that 50 feet per minute going down is the worst thing it, ever. Yeah. It's and there's really some cool. aircraft that are even slower <laughs> yeah. than dollars <laughs> and advertising. It's like, it is so slow. <laughs> like two minutes late. I've had one take two minutes to get through the first 10 feet. <laughs> Not joking, dude. It's so hard to watch an Ahars when the swimmer's in the, sl- in the sling, you know, going out, getting sling deployed and just like, just feels like takes forever. Oh yeah. They're Poor guy. excruciating pain. Just drops out as soon as they go out the cabin. So do you guys see a benefit of the way that 65s do business? Like, how do you think that's going to merge? Because eventually we're going to be a one airframe fleet anyways, right? We're all going to whatever our tendencies and whatever the 60 tendencies are, we're going to kind of mash them together and who knows what's going to come of it. Yeah. I think we've already, even on our first BA flight, we're seeing some great things that you got, your community is going to bring to our community. Yeah. And a lot of that is being so involved with the pilots. Mm-hmm. So we had a actual AFCS degraded chiclet pop up yesterday and Will and I were kind of just, we're sitting there waiting for the pilots to kind of go through it as we normally would as 60 mechanics and our, BA who was in the seat, Rob there, he already had the red book out. AFCS degraded already in there. And he was like, all right, sir, I'm going to take you through the checklist. And he took the pilots through the checklist and read it verbatim through there. And they were like, he's like, did you check this? Yep. Did you check this? Yep. And we were just astonished on how quick he had (laughs) that thing opened and going. And I was like, yeah, this is what we need to take from them. Yeah. We're giving a lot to them, but there's going to be a lot of good stuff coming back our way and great CRM, as we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. like your community has that as they're a kind of a third pilot right behind you. Mm-hmm. And now they're eight feet back in the BA seat. Well, they're going to be able to bring that up to you guys, up to our 60 pilots and be like, Hey, I got you. Yeah. You guys fly the plane. I'm going to be going through the red book. And that's going to be something that we take home and try to put into our new BAs as those 65 flight mechanics are coming through, becoming 60 guys 
And now those guys are the instructors. Those guys are the examiners mm-hmm. for the 60 fleet. And they're going to be, that's going to be just the norm at that point, you know? Yeah. So in a couple of years, we're going to start seeing that transition uh, go through. And um, that dynamic horsing you talked about too, that's going to be great for us. It's going to be good to have in your tool bag as a flight mechanic. Like I don't have a whole lot of experience doing the dynamic hoisting. So someone who does and they need it in a SAR case, I, I, they have that in their tool bag. Mm-hmm. And they also have the, you know, 60 slow and go, mm-hmm. you know, so they're going to be, they're going to be even better flight mechanics than we are right now. So yeah. I think it's going to be good. That's cool. I just think it's really interesting. Um, I feel like there's some invisible barriers automatically between the 65 and 60 community. And some of it is just that healthy banter. Like it's just fun to make fun of, of each community. Um, but there are different things and it'll be interesting to see like how we merge and like, what will that product look like? Like what will a pilot or a flight mech look like in 15, 20 years from now without, you know, those, um, barriers that you've been ingrained from day one to be like, yeah, "Yeah, don't, we always make fun of the 60. Like those guys can never be trusted. And I'm sure you guys are doing the same thing to us. Plastic (laughs) fantastic. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, You know, I think the flight mech's going to start sitting in the jump seat right behind the pilots because <laughs> yeah. they're going to feel like uncomfortable being so far yeah. away. Well, he yeah. tried sitting on the pump earlier. Man, what are you doing up there? You, you know, the best, the best part of that flight yesterday was when we landed at Stennis and refueled and, uh, we, uh, I hop out and I'm talking to, uh, Paul Johansson was our pilot, you know, PJ. Oh yeah. PJ. So I was talking to him about fuel load and we were getting the plan. And I just tell the fuel truck guy like, Hey, fuel it up 273 gallons. And they're like, all right, sweet. And then we do it and then we're done. And, uh, the two, the two guys were in there, there they were waiting. like waiting to turn on power and like right down the fuel load to the T <laughs> and they're like, and we were like, no, we're good, man. They're like, well, you haven't checked the fuel load. We're fine. Oh yeah. Trust yeah. us. <laughs> the <laughs> difference between 1500 pounds and 1510 pounds yeah. is a big difference for us. You oh know? yeah. Like, yeah. And they, they were just like, I can't believe it. Like this is, this is crazy. Yeah. Like, so you want to go get lunch now? Yeah. 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 And, and then Mr. Jansen was like, well, we could have taken more. We just chose not to. <laughs> and we're, uh, I feel like we, we completely left out Nick. Nick, are you still there, dude? <laughs> Oh yeah, I'm just enjoying this. Hey, Nick's there. Yeah, man. I mean, you're you're about to be full of a fleet of 65 pilots at some point, right? Um, have you guys had any discussions about us uh, idiots coming over and joining joining your culture? Um, no, but just nah. what you guys said about any kind of the differences in fuel and then just making fun of each other. But yeah, everything. <laughs> I agree with everything you guys said. Yeah, good. Just yeah, make sure still yeah when, when that 65 flat mech is like in between your two helmets of the guy at the front, you're like, hey, dude, you're hot breath me. Get back there. What are you doing up here? You know? You mean push these like, ACS Hey, hey sir, you said you were going to be at, uh, you know, 500 feet. You're at 490 <laughs> feet. You're like, okay, th- thanks. Uh, yep. Man, that's awesome. That's good stuff. So you think that the program is going to turn into a course then? If you had your magic ball? Well, we're just seeing that we're just right now, we're just seeing how it works. And, uh, and if it is successful, we're looking at, we're looking at a means to make a repeatable yeah. program to where if they flip the switch and say, you know, air state Savannah is transitioning next year to 60, we, uh, will, you know, there's talks about making guys who will come down and be almost like a tiger team for operations. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like surge ops where you would go to that unit and you would take this program with you with all the resources that it has and just help that station qualify their guys for the transition mm-hmm. and get them ready to stand duty. And, uh, and so we're looking at being able to do that because there, 
you know, there's talks of saying like once Ventura comes online, then we're going to be doing one like every one to two years after that. Their plans every year. Yeah. yeah. So there's going to be a lot of 65 member infusion going on. Oh yeah. And, and so the cool thing about it too, is they're also doing a 65 to 60 T course for pilots at the same time we're doing the air crew. Mm -hmm. So right now there's two New Orleans pilots here right now are doing something similar to what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And it's five weeks as well. Um, and I, when we developed this program, I kind of got inspiration from the pilots and the way that w they go about doing the T course. You, you got inspiration from pilots, man? I okay, did. sorry, continue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so one, one of the things that holds up hangar deck instruction is maintenance mm -hmm. uh, and the distractions on the hangar, lack of uh, aircraft, mm -hmm. lack of availability of instructors, mm -hmm. lack of availability of resources. These are what really kind of stalls training. And if you got a guy who's like super, super into it and, and wants to learn, wants to get qualified, they can go pretty quick, but they'll, they'll still be held up by those things. And this program, taking, bringing them here, using all the resources of ATC, helps to accelerate that and takes them away from the distractions. So they're able to just focus on becoming a, a basic air crew and a flight mech, which I, I think adds a lot to their training and their ability to pick up mm -hmm. the wealth of knowledge that we're just like showering them with. Yeah. And you'll see a continuation of increase in 60 aircraft here while we sun down the 65 and we start to lose aircraft. So that hopefully will give you guys more platforms to train on and, and use. Cause I know that the, the 60 division is feeling the heat that the 65 division has felt for a long time with student production and just oh, yeah. kind of getting, you know, worked, uh, and for good reason, like we need to get pilots out, uh, and like we need to get flight max out. It's, it's important. Otherwise we can't stand up new air stations. You guys don't have the, the bench strength to throw people at it. Right. No. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, they're talking about in the future for this, um, if it's successful again, just, uh, developing some type of team, making uh, five billets, I think for people to come down and be permanent members who only focus on this program and developing the curriculum and making it like a, a more polished, uh, more polished program because we had about four or five months, I think, to develop this. And I just grabbed things. Mm -hmm. I just took from what I thought was working in other, other current courses that the Coast Guard had and kind of like mended them together mm -hmm. um, to try to create something that looked like a cool course, you know, like that would get them ready to stand duty. Um, so, and we're just fleshing that out right now here. Yeah. I mean, while you were doing stand visits and AHARs and so they so you know, they mentioned me on the stand visits, but I, oh, they, okay. Incidentally, yeah. I'm going to Cape Cod stand visit here with yeah. So, <laughs> so really? if anything's yeah. uh, screwed up, I'm down here right now. That's right. At, it's, not here, so. yeah. <laughs> it's not your fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, well, I was with you, so yeah. this is why it's like this. Oh man! Remember that time I helped you out with that transition <laughs> program? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Scratch your back, I'll scratch yours. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, we can, we can keep, uh, BSing about SAR cases. I, we love talking about SAR cases here on the podcast and, um, you guys have both been in Kodiak, which is huge for SAR and, and Noel, it's interesting that you guys have flight mechs coming through there. Cause if you're not ready as a 60, uh, pilot or flight mech for what is Gulf coast SAR, like that is air station New Orleans. Like they get the most SAR hands down out of anybody in the 65 community, but um, with all that aside, like you guys got a favorite SAR case that you've been on? Uh, I mean, Will, probably uh, in Kodiak. Let's go to Nick first. Yeah, go to Nick. I was, I was about to say, let's, let's uh, tap into Nick's resources because he's been pretty he's, silent He's here. still there. 
Oh, yeah, I'm still here. I don't forget about you, Mr. Z. <laughs> Nick, you got any good uh, SAR cases to talk about? Um, I, I there's like three. I did I did Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Dorian. Those were those are pretty cool. Nice. But um, I think the coolest like actual like SAR case I had was we did a we did a medevac of a guy that fell down like the hold of a um, bulk tanker or a bulk container ship, mm-hmm. and so um, it was, ended up being. I think like a hundred and forty foot hoist to the bottom of the container because they couldn't get him out like up on deck. So um, I, that was that was a pretty cool one for me. I got to sit right seat for that. Um, put down Kevin Matina and uh, Brad Ulmer was the flight mech on that one. Um, uh, they, those guys did a great job. Got the guy packaged up, brought him back up, and then we did a uh, we landed on the Hamilton and mm-hmm. uh, refueled mm-hmm. there, and then took him to uh, Tampa General. So. That was probably my uh, my coolest star case. Man, that's awesome. Did you say you landed on a ship? I we did. Yeah, George Menzi was the pilot of CIC and was DLQ flawed. So I thought you um, guys. That was my first. I thought your union what? didn't allow uh, shipboard landings. <laughs> yeah, I actually thought that. No, just just, just no overnight. No okay. overnight. Okay, no star overnight. cases yeah. only. Okay, <laughs> star yeah. cases only. That's interesting. Uh, we had um, uh, Commander Williams, the ops boss in New Orleans, reach out to us with a. A shout out that is very similar to your case. I don't know if you you know Zach Moss or Ben Hannon, but they had uh, a guy who fell through uh, exactly that same scenario down through a bulk carrier, and they had to do a, a pretty high hoist, bringing him up and out, and then rescuing him. I think they were in the Mississippi River at the time, but that must have been interesting, like just trying to thread the needle down through that uh, hatch and get that guy up and out. Do you have to put a litter down? Yeah, yeah, we put down the litter. Um, but it, the hoisting wasn't that difficult just because, uh, you know, I was probably 20 to 30 feet from some cranes that I could use as like a good reference. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't that hard. It was just, it was just a cool, cool kind of case. Mm-hmm. Favorite, uh, 60 air station right off the bat. Oh man. Oh man. Uh, well, I've only been to Clearwater and Cape Cod and, uh, they both have their, uh, if you could go to any, time, so. any 60 air station. Ready to Any go. Any 60 air station. Oh, man. All right. I don't know. I'd have to say Cape Cod because I like, I like the quiet life up here now. I've got my own little house, and it's like a 15-minute commute, so I'd say up here in Cape Cod. Cape Cod. Nice. How about you, Andrew? You got uh, any favorite SAR case you got on? Yeah, actually, um, my first – so I got qualified in Cape Cod, and then uh, I just had, like, first light searches and all that jazz – didn't really get uh, a whole lot of experience before I got the boot up to Kodiak. So my first case in Kodiak, I was standing duty up in Cold Bay, Alaska. And that's kind of our deployment site, as mm-hmm. you guys might have heard. It's down the Aleutian chain. Aleutian right? chain. Yep. yep. Closer to Dutch Harbor there. And uh, we got called to go medevac somebody who got crushed by machinery on a big ship. Uh, they had said that they had like a flailed chest. and Sucking chest wound. Yeah. All that jazz. Nice. So middle of the night we go out and it's, it's, you know, it's blowing 30 or so and 15, 20 foot seas. Classic. And uh, the, the, it was just the start of crabbing season. So the boats were extremely light. Mm-hmm. So they were just coming right up out of the water. And uh, we got the, it took me nine tries to get the trail line on deck because the winds were blowing so bad. Whoa. So I put 15 pounds for, you know, three weight bags on the trail line. And it was already behind the... the With the, that much yeah. weight on the trail line? Yeah, it, had, it was behind the stab, dude. basically. So I'm trying to con the aircraft about 20, 30 feet past the, the bow of the ship. Mm-hmm. And third try, I got it on deck, called easy back and left, and the trail line just 
ripped out of my hand because they had got an altitude altitude call. Yep. And that was the bow of the ship coming up and hitting that like 30 foot bug. No way. So we, they, you know, ripped it back, ripped the trail line out of my hand. I just kind of let it go and lost that trail, lost line. that trail line. So now I'm down to, and we were doing, we, we were doing double trail line when we started. Yeah. So I grabbed the heavy weather trail line, which was two trail lines, another 15 pounds on there. Is this your last attempt? <laughs> Pretty much. Line? I was like, well, I, I mean, I have one more trail line and I can throw some chalks in a bag or something if we, if we need to, you know? Yeah. And the swimmer's in the door with me because we're doing a swimmer deployment, harness deployment to the vessel. And so we're doing the same thing. On that ninth try, I got it on deck, easy back and left, paid out the trail line, got it pretty much all the way paid out and hooked it to Russ Grizzard, my, my rescue swimmer. And we had um, Commander Merrill up front and um, Jerry Limick mm-hmm. driving, driving the boat. Yep. And so we pay out. I get the swimmer out the door, send him down, and we're just playing this seesaw game with this ship because they were just jumping just right out of the water out. and crashing back down. And we we were on scene for an hour and a half, and we hoisted for about an hour. Whoa! And wow. um, for two hoists, probably right. Well, so we I got him about eight feet to the deck, and and I just ripped him off. I ripped him off. I said, "It's not our night." I boarded, and I was so defeated because this was my first case. You know, like I was like, I just failed. You know, like yeah. I try. And Commander Merrill, he goes, he goes after I boarded. He goes, "All right, what are we doing out here, guys?" And I was like, I, I don't think it's our night. You know, I, I was like, I was like, Russ is going to get screwed up if I put him on that deck, let alone try to get a litter down, litter off, him off. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, I was like, let's, and Russ was like, let's check condition of the guy, like see where he's at. Like, is he stable enough for them to get in the Dutch or can we wait three hours till it's sunlight yep. and we have some visuals to uh, go back out and they kind of reassess the guy and turns out he wasn't like in such a critical condition where, where they needed to get him off. So uh, we aborted the case, flew back home, and we were all pretty defeated at the end because, yeah. you know, I mean, you got a lot of experience up front, and they were like, that's the first case we've ever aborted, and I'm a brand new flight mech in the back, and I was like, well, it's my first case, and I aborted it, so <laughs> I was pretty defeated, and I called my buddy back home, and he was like, ah, dude, in a couple hours, you'll get another star case, and you'll be out there doing it again, and, <laughs> and sure enough, uh, about four hours later, we had another star case to go out on. And this guy had a dislocated hip. His leg got tied up on a line, and they went up. They went up on the wave, and he went up, and the rope caught him and pulled his leg out of his hip. Oh, so dislocated hip. We're going out to rescue him. At we know we're doing a litter hoist, so we kind of pull the pump out of the cabin, set up the litter. As we're doing that, we get another call to go. So this was like a hundred miles offshore to go rescue him. We get another call to go fifty miles north of that to go rescue somebody else in conjunction with so we're just kind of doing that puddle jumping rescue case so i'm like all right well this is this is the real deal now yeah so we go 150 miles out basket the first guy up i didn't send the swimmer down or anything because the guy was kind of ambulatory so we just basketed him up put him put him in the troop seats sewed the basket we still have the litter all set up Mm -hmm. go to the next case i put the swimmer down uh, and the guy is just, he's just kind of like sitting in there in the troop seat. So I'm kind of like trying to manage him, make sure he's okay. Put the litter down. We get the litter uh, down to the swimmer and he's taking a while because this guy's got a dislocated leg. So he tells, he tells the guy, tells us after anyways, he's like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to swing your leg in here and it's going to hurt really bad. And I'm going to do it on three. Ready? One. And he just puts it right in there. <laughs> oh, he straps the guy in. No way. And he, so I send the hook back down and, uh, and I'm you know, hoisting the litter up and, uh, you, the pilots go, uh, 
Andrew, is that, is that you breaking Vox? I said, well, that's the guy screaming breaking Vox. No <laughs> he was way. just screaming on the way up because it was just in so much pain. So we <clears> get the guy in the cabin, got Russ back up, and uh, we ended up doing two patient transfers right there at Cold Bay for both both medevacs. Wow. So that was that was my actual first, first hoisting case was a double double hoist, two as different a, cases. As a qualified flight yeah. back first time. Yeah. Wow. Yep. We ended up having uh, nine cases that that trip. And um, we rescued, I want to say we, we hoisted like four or five people up. And on the last SAR case we had was uh, six EPIRBs going off. And this was during that like super moon tide, yeah, crazy time yeah. up, in, up in the Bering Sea in uh, I think 2018. Yeah. So we get six EPIRBs going off. That's the call we got. And we're like, oh man. All right, Russ. Get get your fins on, buddy. <laughs> you know, so we get on scene and the boat the boat's kind of dead in the water. All their windows are blown out, and um, they were dead in the water. They're trying to get comms and everything back. So I ended up doing a uh, trail line deployment of the radio uh-huh. to to this guy in a Gumby suit, and I've never seen anybody so happy. You know, he just. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and so he passed it through the window that was blown out because he didn't want to like walk around and drop it or anything. And uh-huh. we finally got comms with the boat and everybody was okay. And we're like, uh, can, can you guys turn all your reperbs off? Like you only need to have one of them on. Yeah. You know, like maybe, you, just, you know, you guys are doing okay. So you can turn them all off now. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. But, just going back to that, that first case, because I think it's important, you know, we, we talked to you about, you know, solid CRM. Um, yeah. and here's a case where you guys use solid CRM to employ like risk management and that on scene to say, okay, we just tried something. I don't think it's going to work. And I think the likelihood of risking, you know, injury to, to our swimmer, yeah. we might need to look at the gain and, and that's exactly what you guys yeah. did. Also swimmers are crazy. Uh, sometimes yeah. I feel like there's a screw loose, but can you imagine just yeah. like sitting in the door Watching you guys, they can't even, you guys can't even just, get a trail line safely down there, but yeah. he's sitting in the door ready to be like, yeah, as soon as you figure that out, you just send <laughs> yeah, me down. Yeah. You know? Let me know. <laughs> Dude. And Russ, he's an awesome guy. He's, I think he's at, um, uh, Houston or he's in Texas somewhere right now. Oh my God. He's just, he's an awesome guy. And, uh, he, he said when, when I pulled him away from the boat, they kind of just let go of the trail line. Cause they knew we were just, you know, we would been out there for an hour. Mm-hmm. So they'd, they're holding them by the trail line and we would pull back and we're doing the seesaw game. Well, they had just like let go of the trail line. So he's just, he's like, I saw the tail and then I saw the nose and I was like, yeah. And I'm just out there just trying to counteract him. Mm-hmm. And I, I ended up paying him down. So, you know, we were doing like a hundred foot, 110 foot hoist. I ended up paying him down like closer to the water to stop the swing mm-hmm. and then bring him back up. Cause yeah. it was it's, just crazy. It's interesting. Like the, you know, feeling defeated by coming back from that and like, you know, we're all some sort of type A personality and we want to get it done. We want to get it done. But like some of those missions are like the ones that you learn the most from. Yeah. And giving that, uh, like if you go out, I, just in my own personal opinion, you go out to save somebody and they see a helicopter overhead, like the will to live definitely goes up from there. And even if you're like, hey, we can't get you off now, but we'll come back in the daylight yeah. and we can get you off in three hours. Like, that person has seen the helicopter. They've heard that radio, or they yep. have been relayed that radio call, and like that actually makes a big difference. Yeah, like, even even you going out and trying makes a big difference. But shit, that's a hard call to like say, yeah. "Hey guys, not not the day." But I think this is where the rubber hits the road when you start talking about thirty seven ten and mm-hmm. warranted risk. In your mind, in that moment, you're like, 
I, I am going to hurt the swimmer or kill him. Yeah. Right. And so you're like, I, well, I'm not doing that. So let's, let's stop doing that. Um, yeah. And then, and you guys go back and you talk about it and you're like, yeah, I, unfortunately, like this person is in a very unfortunate circumstance where their life may be threatened, um, or they're going to s- suffer some pretty good s- suffering, you know, based off whatever their ailment was, whether it was a sucking chest wound or a broken leg. Right. Um, but you're like, I am not willing to risk our crew to right. save that person right now. Mm-hmm. Maybe later we do it. And, you know, a lot of these SAR cases that we go out and we think of like, oh, we have to affect a rescue right now. And you're like, eh, a lot of these things will resolve themselves. Yeah. Even if we don't have any, you know, you know, whether we intercede or not in this situation. So, and something, I don't know if you've had any experience with that too, Will, but like that's something from the backseat uh, from you guys or swimmers, like especially when you're having that call with, um, you know, we'll have the swimmer come in and talk with the flight surgeon about to go out do a medevac. Like if you have had an experience where you're like, hey, we just waited for daylight and it got way easier. Like you might have a new AC that hasn't had the opportunity to wait for daylight or, you know, had the opportunity to call the ops boss yet and get their perspective. And if you guys say that, it's like, bing, light bulb comes on and you're like, okay, yeah, that makes way more sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I've I've had that happen where a case like Bodega Bay, we're actually hoisting with the 47, a night trainer, and all of a sudden you hear like, uh, mayday, 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 this is a, you know, fishing vessel. We just went on the rocks in Bodega Bay. And you're like, "That's, that's like 300 yards behind us. So we're like, Oh, okay. We'll abort this hoist, and we start going over. And sure enough, as soon as we get on scene, there's a 30 foot boat that's just getting smashed on the rocks. Like you're watching this vessel break apart, and dude, that adrenaline flow just dumps. You're like, okay, here we are. And I remember we had a FMI because I think we were doing some sort of upgrade, blaze pots, and uh, he's mm-hmm. like, no one is in an immediate danger right now, and that just stopped everyone being like, you're right. We Let's stop. Let's come into hover and let's talk for 30 seconds about what we want to do and how we want to do it. Cause yep. no one is dying right now. Whereas I was ready to just skip, skip briefs, like put a basket, put a, put something down there. We need to do something right now. And it was him snapping us out of that, or at least me out of that yep. mindset to, to slow down. Yeah. When Adam Merrill said, all right guys, what are we doing out here today? Like that was the whole, like key, you know, like, right. well, let's ask how the, how the patient's doing. We've been here for an hour. They're not calling us saying he's dying, you know? Yeah. So like, can we wait a little longer? Can we yeah. change course? Mm-hmm. Can we, but what know? sparked that question was you being like, no, yeah, I, I, yeah. I cannot safely do this. Yeah. I, I, yeah. As soon as I, Russ said, he goes, I was about eight feet from the mass of that ship. Like, and I was like, yeah, I just, I called abort right there. Cause I saw that kind of go like that that ship's coming up and he's going down and they're seesawing and we've been, we were trying our damnedest, you know? Yeah. And for sure. I was like, this just ain't working. Yikes. What do you got there, dude? Do you have a favorite star case? <laughs> Should have asked me first. <laughs> <laughs> I, I unfortunately didn't get uh, the crazy cases like that up in Kodiak, but. You're just looking for moose sheds and uh, whale bones the entire time <laughs> laying on the beachhead. You, you can't say that. Okay, we, we just were looking for places to pee. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Speaking of that. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess my favorite case would have been like my la- my last one up in Kodiak, which was in Barrow, Alaska. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were up there or deployed up there before they they moved to, what are they, in Kotzebue? Kotzebue now? Yeah. yeah. So we were in Barrow, I think one of the last actual Barrow deployments before they moved to Dead Horse. And we got a call from a Korean science 
ship that was an icebreaker mm-hmm. and they were they were significantly further away than when we when when we got on scene to pick up uh the member on the boat and we briefed it the night before because we already had intel a guy had was working out and dropped a weight on his head and they were worried that he was gonna have like severe brain damage because of the amount of weight and like the force that hit his head you know so they called us to to go out there so they asked the ship to turn around and start heading towards Barrow, uh-huh. and we ended up meeting them about 250 miles northwest of Barrow, out in the Arctic there. Um, but we briefed it the night before. We made a plan. We woke up early the next morning knowing what, what to expect. We, we rebriefed just to make sure that everybody was clear about what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we just punched up into the clouds because up there... The weather sucks. Yeah. So we just knew that we were going to be flying without any visibility. The entire way out. The for like entire two, way. Two hours. Probably, we we right? flew in the clouds for two hours. Wow. Um, <laughs> and then so when we got to we when we got to the location that we were telling like, hey, we're going to meet you in this general area. We punched through the clouds and we ended up being like thirty feet above water. When uh, you got down to the water. Yeah, that was Whoa, like the, ceil- the ceilings out? were like thirty feet. Uh, and it was less than an eighth of a mile of visibility. It was like the worst visibility you could think of. Uh, there's ice floating everywhere, you know, it was crazy. Um, it was also really cool. And so a younger me didn't, did not think at all about danger, by the way. (laughs) So to me, this was like, this is great. This is awesome. This is what I've lived for. But like me now would be a little bit more. I hope you guys know what you mean there. (laughs) (laughs) But, but our plan was we were only going to have about 15 minutes on scene, which is weird to say for 60, but we were, we were under the gun and, uh, we were just going to do a double basket hoist of the guy and his translator. So <laughs> you're right. Noting that right there, huh? Noting Somet- it. Sometimes noting a 60 uh, noting it. is pressed for time. Yep. Sometimes. I just have uh, to have notes for this. Keep, keep in mind. When you're though, in the clouds for two hours. Yeah. You know. when, when you've flown for about three hours in the clouds and then you get on scene, you know, you have three hours back. That's when in the 60, you're in trouble. Yep. So, but we, we said, Hey, we're just going to do a double basket hoist. We're not even going to send the swimmer down. We know what's wrong with the guy. They said he can get in the basket. So. Uh, we asked the people on, on board there, hey, is there somebody who can tend the basket when we send it down? Huge ship, right? Mm-hmm. So not not a hard hoist at all. But uh, when we got on scene, we couldn't find the ship. Yeah. And they were in the area, and we knew it. So we had them do uh, a hard count so we could find them on the DF. Yeah. And so they started doing a, a countdown from 10. And I think they did it like five times before we actually found them. And then all you see is this like incandescent light coming through the fog. And then, bam, ship. Wow. So it was uh, it was pretty crazy how quickly it appeared out of nowhere, essentially. But we couldn't see this thing. And if, if it was a clear day, we would have seen it for miles. Yeah. But this ship, which was a red hole, which had lights all over the place, we couldn't see through the fog. Would have been, I wonder what their perspective was seeing a helicopter fly out of nothing <laughs> and then just appear. They I'm probably not, don't understand they like probably what understand. it took to get to someone get there. there and hoist someone off, right? Yep. I mean, they, think they about probably, the like the years of training and money to be like, yep, we'll just pick this person up and not off we go. You know, you got it. Yeah, testament to the Coast Guard's training program to be able to go out and safely execute that mission. That's crazy. They they probably actually didn't even know we were there. They could probably just hear us until mm-hmm. we actually were over the ship because I couldn't see the the helipad on the back of the ship until we were just over it. Man, it's wild. Uh, yeah. Was did the guy? Was he okay? Or you guys? Yeah, he was fine. Straight to the hospital, or yeah, we were like seven minutes on scene. Sent the basket down. He got in. 
we got him up, got him in, put him in the troop seat. Then I sent it back down to get his translator. Yep. Because he was Korean and couldn't speak a lick of English. Mm-hmm. So his translator came up, and we kind of talked back and forth on the on the way back. But uh, yeah, where do you take people for higher level of care when you're like way up in Barrow, Alaska, or anywhere like Cold Bay or? Yeah, so they fly in um, a jet from Anchorage, and oh, okay. med flight comes in. So we do our mission. We'll land at Barrow, Cold Bay, Dutch Harbor, wherever, and they'll fly in a jet. And I got gotcha. you. Pull them off and to pull them off from yep. there. Okay. Yep. They they did have a hospital in Barrow. I think they took him there initially. I don't know what happened to him after that. Okay. But we at least got him back to Barrow. He got off. They went. He went to the hospital immediately so that they could start doing whatever they need to do for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was it. <laughs> yeah. No. Sorry. Sorry. No. Like large waves or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I wish you would ask me first because yeah. then he, we could have ended on Andrew's <laughs> cases. But no, I appreciate. I mean, that's a good story. That I mean, that takes a lot of crew coordination to get out that far offshore in that terrible weather and find a boat and then lift somebody off. Like you say, it's not a big SAR case, but that's a terrible sarcasm. Like that is a crappy weather. That is a, yeah, it's not an easy one for sure. So, so to me, my, my thought was like, we were just doing what we were trained to do, you know? Like, yeah. I didn't really think much of it until people started like, man, I can't believe you did that. Yeah. Like, what do you mean? I can't believe I did that. That's what I'm getting paid to do. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure it's a lot scarier for the pilots up front too. <laughs> but it's one of those things like that's, that's what you trained for is that case right yeah. there. Um, up in Alaska with icing and clouds and low visibility to go find someone in the fog yep. to get them off. So. And you can safely do it. Yeah. Yep. That's the be- That's the biggest part. You can safely go out and do that one. So. Yeah. And it, it seemed like a nothing burger because it just seemed to go so smoothly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we got back, just like I said, we did it. Dumb me. It was like, yeah, sweet. No big deal. <laughs> Tight. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go get some tacos. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, hey, guys, uh, really appreciate you guys taking the time to to talk to us. And I think uh, everyone at least wrote down a few things that, that they learned or at least do some internal reflection on. But I think we warned you guys we like to finish the show with uh, some sort of uh, advice, whether that's career, aviation, fatherhood. Um, so I don't know. You, you got the uh, mic. Well, what do you got? Well, <clears throat> Uh, fatherhood thing. I I won't give anybody advice. Just survive, <laughs> <laughs> and just realize that everybody who's doing it is in the same boat as you. Uh-huh. Um, if if I were to speak to air crew right now, I would just say take your job seriously. Um, don't see yourself as just somebody who runs radios in the back and is just kind of a warm body. Your primary duty is to back up the pilots. Um, so really get involved with what's going on up front mm-hmm. and. You know, we talked about CRM. Understand, again, like I said earlier, that everybody's on an equal plane in the back of the helicopter or in the helicopter, and your voice is just as important as anybody else is there. Everybody has a voice, so mm-hmm. speak up. Mm-hmm. If you don't feel comfortable, you don't feel safe, your voice matters. So say what you need to say, and then you guys will learn from it, either on the backside or you may have, you may have saved somebody's life. Yep. Um, but... Take it seriously. Know the aircraft. Know the systems. Be somebody who is uh, a working member of society, if you will, in Coast Guard aviation and mm. um, do your job. Yeah. Yeah, we're all part of the same crew. Whatever happens to that helicopter, it's happening to all four of us or how many people we got in there. Oh, yeah. For sure. What about you, Andrew? Let's go to Nick. We're going to Nick? <laughs> yeah. Nick, you still there? Nick's still there? Yeah, I'm still hey, there. Hey, oh, Nick's still there. Hey. <laughs> Love the stories, guys. Um, the... Uh, I think the biggest thing I want to 
just touch people. Uh, we do some honestly, truly, truly awesome, impressive, amazing stuff in the Coast Guard. Um, that being said, I, I think I, I like to impress on people like stay humble, you know, because just because you did, you made that like incredible hoist uh, yesterday doesn't mean, you know, next week it's going to turn out the same. So mm-hmm. um, and a mishap can happen to any time at any person. There's always mishaps with you know, two super experienced ACs in the uh, aircraft together. So mm-hmm. just stay humble. Don't think that something can happen to you just because it hasn't already. That's a good mm-hmm. word. Yeah, absolutely. Also, I'm going to see if uh, Ryan, our producer, can put up the picture of your military ID because <laughs> you do look like Hal. I looked up the guy's name. It's Hal. It's Hal. <laughs> Hal. That's his name yeah. in the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Hal. All right. Nice, Andrew. All right. Well, uh, as some people, some listeners might have known, we've kind of had a recent incident on the 60 side, and we lost one of our members. And um, mm. you know, it goes back to that CRM of everything. Like, it's not just in the plane. Like talk about what you got going on at home. Like you get into that brief, like, Hey, I'm not, I'm not feeling it today. All right. Well, just, we'll, we'll grab somebody else. No big deal. You know, um, we need to be able to take away that stigma of, Hey, I got to get this done. I got to go, I got to go execute this SAR mission. I've got to get to work today. Like mm-hmm. if you need that moment, take that moment, you know? And, um, you know, Hulk, Hulk will be pretty missed and, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a great point, man. Like, set a little bit of internal reflection and actually am I good to do this? And then the person who says that they might not be good, a little bit of intrusive leadership or just being a good friend. Yeah. Like, Hey man, are you all right? For sure. Sweet. Awesome. Once again, thank you guys. Thank you for uh, providing lunch for us today. Oh, uh, dude, the lunch was delicious. delicious. Wait, you, guys got, you guys got lunch down there? I yeah. didn't get lunch. Dude, we had lunch, man. It was delicious. Liquid lunch. It was so good. <laughs> guys, this was awesome. Thanks so much for joining. You got any other parting shots? Just don't uh, say anything about my wife. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll end on that. All right. <laughs>